I'll invite you to turn this evening to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus chapter 1. We'll be reading the entire chapter, but we'll be focusing on verses 1 through 9. Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus begins right where Exodus leaves off. The glory of the Lord descends into the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Moses himself cannot enter. There's a brief epilogue in Exodus telling us that wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle there, the people of Israel went. And Leviticus begins right then and there, God speaking from the tabernacle itself. So Leviticus chapter 1, we'll read the whole chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He will bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priests shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priests shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers, the flower fades away, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would 
Help it to be expounded with clarity and with accuracy and with the power of the Holy Spirit that we would understand it, that it would seek to convict where it needs to convict and comfort where it needs to comfort. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two questions asked in the hymn we just sang. There are five verses, but only two questions asked. And they're found in actually the very first verse. Here are the questions. First, what can wash away my sin? The answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. The second question is this, what can make me whole again? The answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And the answer to those two questions gives us the gospel. It's a short sentence, but it's a gospel sentence. God created man good and after his own image. In order that man should rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. But when Adam fell, he became guilty. He became guilty of treason against the eternal God. He became filthy, unclean, polluted. He became shameful. Or as the Heidelberg describes him, he became wicked and perverse. And all of us are wicked and perverse and guilty in Adam. And so if we think about the question that this hymn asks in a different way, as those lost in Adam, the answer to the question is very different. Sinful man or woman born in Adam... What can wash away your sin? Answer, nothing. Sinful man or woman in Adam, what can make you whole again? Answer, nothing. It's a terrifying answer. But God would be fully within his rights as our creator to let that be the answer. And it is only because he is merciful. He is gracious. He is love itself that he decided to give another answer to that question. And so when the guilty and perverse, the wicked image bearers, were exiled from the garden, God gave them a promise that they carried with them. It was a promise of salvation. A promise that they would be one day, in the fullness of time, recreated. That they should rightly know God, their creator. Heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. And that's the promise that undergirds the whole of scripture. It's the promise given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. It's the promise given to the people of Israel when through Moses they were brought out by God himself when he broke their chains and he led them out into the wilderness. It's the promise that 
was given again at the foot of Mount Sinai when the blood of the covenant was shed and God promised to be their God and that they would be his people. So the promise undergirds everything. But at the same time, the crisis that Adam and Eve first experienced in paradise is still the crisis that was faced by the people of Israel. The crisis is, how can God, holy and just, eternally holy and just, how can God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? The pollution of sin must be wiped clean. Sin must be atoned for. And God therefore gives sacrifices. As one commentator states it very well, the way to God, the only way to God, is through a bloody knife and a burning altar. And there are five sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. This evening we consider the first one. All five are connected. And the first, what we just read, is the basis of all the others. And we'll see that Jesus Christ himself is the whole burnt offering. He is sacrificed for you and he atones for the guilt of your sin and he atones for the pollution of your sin. And so we're going to focus on the three headings there that you see in your bulletin. An acceptable offering, an offering that substitutes and atones for sin, and Jesus Christ, the whole burnt offering. So we're focusing this evening on verses 3 through 9, but before we consider these verses, we need to notice several important aspects of the whole chapter. First, notice in verse 2 that the requirements for this type of burnt offering are given to the children of Israel. These are the requirements given to individual Israelites, individual members of the community who are bringing a sacrifice to the Lord. Later in Leviticus, God will give requirements for the priests. The priests have to offer this sacrifice for all the congregation of Israel every morning and every evening. But in chapter 1, we're dealing with an individual who is bringing a sacrifice to the Lord. Second, as you look through the chapter, you can see that there are requirements for whether the offering is a bull, a ram, or turtle doves and pigeons. We're focusing only on the bull because the meaning of the sacrifice is the same. There's a few variations depending on the animal. The meaning of the sacrifice is the same. And so you might ask, why are there different animals? Why not just have one? Well, the answer is that God is concerned about the rich and the poor. A bull, as today, is extremely expensive. The poor would not be able to bring a bull from the flock but they could bring turtle doves or pigeons. And then finally, notice in passing in verse 2, that the sacrifice had to come from the herd and of the flock. In other words, the animal had to come from the flock of the person who is offering it. And so sometimes herds and flocks were kept in common, many different people having a share in the flock, Sometimes an individual would have his own flock. But either way, this means that the animal was raised and tended by the one offering it. 
So the same person who offers the sacrifice is the one who raised it. So it's a weighty and it's a somber thing to offer your own animal. So with these bigger aspects in mind, let's actually look through now in our text, beginning in verse 3. Please read with me again. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. The requirement for sacrifice is perfection. God requires this sacrifice to be without blemish. And the word here refers to something that is whole, that is blameless, that is perfect. It is a perfect male, a male that is faultless. Notice the person who brings the offering must bring it of his own free will. For the individual, this is not an offering that is coerced. It is not forced on the person. It is an offering that is brought of his own free will. And in bringing this offering for his sin and for his sinfulness, he also brings this offering as an act of worship. So there's intention here. There's personal cost. There's the seeking for the best. There's the seeking for the choicest. The choicest male. And so here's the picture. You feel the deep guilt and filth of your sin. You feel the shame for your sin. You look at yourself and you see the depth of your brokenness. And you see yourself condemned in the eyes of God. And you know and you feel the sense of wrath upon yourself. And so you go through the herd and you carefully examine each of the male animals. This one, does this one have a blemish? Is this one faultless? Does this one have an eye disease? Does this one have a broken hoof? This one doesn't meet the requirement. This one doesn't meet the requirement. And finally, you see it. It's a male without blemish. It's perfect. It's whole. It's complete. And so you take it by the hand and you lead it away from the herd. You lead it into the company of your fellow Israelites. You lead it into the camp. And at the center of the camp is the tent of meeting. And you lead it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And you bring it right up into the doorway of the tabernacle itself, where you know that the presence of God is. And we notice here in verse 3 that the offering must be accepted by the Lord. The priest, God's representative, makes sure that the offering meets the requirements. And if it's acceptable, the priest, the representative of God himself, will accept the offering. It is accepted before the Lord. It is the Lord, and it's always the Lord, who can accept a sacrifice. And now something incredible happens. Before the presence of the Lord, a substitution takes place. Read with me again verse 4. He, that is the person making the offering, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering... And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So before the presence of the Lord in the tent 
of meeting, the offerer takes his hand and he lays his hand on the head of the bowl. And the translation here in the ESV doesn't really actually do this word justice. It really should read something like this. Then he shall lay his hand against the head. Or even better, he shall press his hand against the head of the burnt offering. The offerer is quite literally leaning his body weight against the animal. He's pressing against it. But why? What's being shown here? What does it mean? Well, the answer is found in the last part of the verse. After leaning his hand against the head of the burnt offering, we read that it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So the animal, the offering, is now accepted for the offerer. It is accepted on his behalf. The animal is now a substitute for the offerer. And so what's a substitute? It's one who takes the place of another. When you're playing basketball and you are ready to come out from the court, the coach will send in a substitute. His place for your place. Same with soccer and many other sports. Or a substitute teacher. The teacher's gone in the place as a substitute. You don't see the teacher anymore. You see the substitute. And so this brings us to our second point. We need to understand how this animal is a substitute. In what way is this animal substituting for the offerer? And I think the answer is seen beginning in verse 5. Read with me again. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering, that means skin it, and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priests shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priests shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So notice here the completeness of what is offered. We already saw that the animal itself has to be whole and complete and without blemish. But how much of the animal is offered? All of it. The whole animal. The skin is removed because that is not a pleasing aroma to the Lord and it's given to the priests. But every part of that animal is offered to the Lord. In verse 5, after the bull is killed, the blood, all the blood, is collected by the priests and it's sprinkled, it's thrown, it's splashed against the altar. In verse 6, the offerer skins the bull and cuts all the animal into pieces. In verse 8, the priests lay all the parts, the head and the fat, in order on the wood. Even the legs are cleansed with water and laid on the altar to be burned. So the animal itself is complete, it's whole, without blemish, and even more, the whole animal is completely burned on the altar. And the question is, how far does sin go? 
What's the extent of sin? Sin is in our mind, it's in our heart, it's in our will, it's in our bodies, it's in creation. Sin is not a substance, and yet it's everywhere. Sin is not located on or around you, but within you. And it extends to the whole of your being. How much must be atoned for you? All of you. In other words, the substitute extends as far as the sin goes. So sin extends throughout your whole being. And what's the price for sin? The price for sin is death. And sin must be punished. Sin forfeits the life of the sinner. The sinner must either die or be ransomed from the price on their head. Have you ever thought of sin that way? The guilt of sin is a price on your head. The price for any sin which is committed against an eternal God must be paid eternally, infinitely, and completely. To sin even just once is to sin against an eternally and infinitely holy God, a just God. And so under the law of God, you must die for sin, for every sin that you've committed. In ourselves, the demands of the law would be our death. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 10, says this, Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? And what's the answer? By no means. But he is terribly displeased with our inborn as well as our actual sins and will punish them in just judgment in time and eternity. As he has declared, cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And so really the question is not whether sin will be punished. The question is who will be paying the price? Who will be paying the punishment? Either way, we must satisfy the just judgment of God or someone else must do it in our place. And so what does verse 4 say? He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him. What mercy and love the Lord God shows to us. God didn't need to give his lost image bearers a substitute for the punishment of their sins. God was under no obligation to spare. And what do we see here? He shall lay his hands, he shall press his hand against the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And so now notice this word, atonement. This is a very, very special word. It refers both to the payment of guilt and to the cleansing of filth. So to atone means to pay a ransom price and to wipe clean. These meanings are close hand in hand in this word. 
So we've already been considering the first aspect, the, the guilt of sin. The price of sin is death. Your life, in other words. And so what can possibly pay the price of your life? A substitute life. A whole life. A perfect life. A life without blemish. And the life of the person or the animal is found in the blood. In Leviticus 17.11, God says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The blood of the animal is its life, and this is why the priests collect all of it. All of the life. To sprinkle around the altar to substitute for the guilt of sin. So the guilt of sin must be satisfied, but sin also pollutes. Sin stains you, it makes you dirty, it requires cleansing. So the blood of the sacrifice cleanses and purifies and makes clean. You'll start to notice this all over in the Old Testament. You'll notice this aspect of cleansing and atonement. Leviticus 8.15, for instance, Moses takes the blood of the sacrifice and he purifies the altar. He cleanses it. He cleans it. He cleans it from the filth of sin and from the pollution of sin. Or when a leper, when a leper was healed, he had to go and make a sin for his healing because he was still ritually unclean. And the priest would place the blood of the sacrifice on him to cleanse him, to purify him. So the blood of the burnt offering makes atonement. It purifies, it cleans from the filth and the pollution of sin. And so day by day, the filth and the stench of sin rises up before the Lord. Sin committed in the morning... Sin committed in the afternoon, sin committed at night. Sins of pride, sins of hatred, sins of murder in the heart. Sins of lust. Sins of adultery. Sins of covetousness, of envy, of greed. Sin rises up. It rises up, as it were, from every sinful heart In the camp, it stains, it seeps, it taints every man and every woman and every child in the camp. The guilt of sin and the filth of sin required constant sacrifice, constant atonement. And so do you see the gospel picture here? You feel the filth of your sin. You feel the shame of the sin that so easily besets you day after day after day. The sin that tempts you. The sin that seduces you. The sin that grips your imagination and grips your heart and grips your mind and grips your will. And even though you hate it, you still give in to it day after day. You fall to it. And now what do you feel? You feel the filth of it. You feel the shame of the sin. And so you take a bull from the herd. You lead it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. You lay your hand on it. You press your hand against it. It substitutes for you. It stands in your place. And you take the knife in your hands and you kill that animal. And the blood pours out. The blood of this animal who is blameless. Who is without blemish. Who never sinned. 
And you know that the life is in the blood. And the priest, God's representative to you, collects all the blood and he splashes it against the altar. And now you take that knife and you dismember that animal. The animal that was formerly whole and complete and without blemish, now it's in pieces. It's laid on the altar. And the fire on the altar, which doesn't go out, it transforms that offering into smoke. It's consumed on the altar and the smoke rises up and you know that God himself has accepted that offering on your behalf. And instead of wrath, there's a pleasing aroma. A sweet aroma. God's wrath has been turned away. It's been satisfied. His justice and righteousness have been vindicated of your sin. Your guilt is gone. Your filthiness is gone. It's wiped away. It's cleansed. The stench of the sin is gone and all that remains is a sweet and pleasing aroma. So brothers and sisters, do we see Christ Jesus in this sacrifice? The whole burnt offering itself is just a shadow. It's just a picture. It points us to the whole burnt offering. The whole burnt offering of the Son of God. The blood of an animal could never atone for a human's sin. The blood of bulls and goats and rams cannot atone for sin. Why? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned must make satisfaction for sin. A human being sinned. A human being must pay the guilt and filth and price of sin. But every human being is broken. Every human being is sinful in themselves. Only a true and righteous man, a man who lived a perfect life, a man who is whole and complete and without blemish, can possibly atone for sin. Only the blood of Christ, as the author of the Hebrews says, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Jesus, a true and righteous man, and at the same time, true and omnipotent God. By the power of his Godhead, Jesus Christ bore in his manhood the burden of God's wrath. And so he obtains for us and restores to us righteousness and life. And so what does this offering show you about your salvation? What does it show you about how you are saved by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. I think we can pull at least two applications from this. The first is this. The substitute actually atones for your sin. The substitute actually atones for your sin. This might seem obvious. We know this intellectually. But I think some of us, all of us at some point, start to doubt this in our own experience. But consider the objective nature of this. The animal was killed. 
The animal was placed on the altar. The animal was fully consumed by the fire. The offerer was not. The Son of God, in and through his manhood, actually substitutes for you. He takes your curse, the judgment of your sin, and he pays it. Actually pays it. Fully pays it. He takes the blood of his sacrifice and he washes you and he makes you clean. But you might say, but I don't feel washed. I don't feel as if I've been made whole. My sin is so dark. My sin is so deep. I've committed so many sins. I've committed sins that I can't confess. I can't even verbalize these sins because they're so deep and I feel so much shame and guilt. I've struggled with the same sin over and over and over again, and I try to fight it and I fall again. How can you say that that sin is gone when I still feel so broken? What's the answer that this passage gives us? Cling to the objective truth of what Christ did for you. You may not feel it, but it's true. Someone else has truly and atoned and paid for your sin. Jesus Christ really offered himself on the cross and he substituted for you. And the power of his Godhead enabled him to do that. That's true. Even if you don't feel it. And because your sin has been completely and entirely atoned for in the blood of Jesus... Paul can say to the Romans, objectively and truly, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Does your heart accuse you? Does the devil, the accuser of the brethren, accuse you? There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, because even though you didn't atone for your sin, someone else did. Second, this is a picture. The reality of Christ's sacrifice is far better. Why? In the picture, it's the offer who brings the sacrifice. But here's the amazing and beautiful truth. You did not bring Jesus to the cross to atone for your sin. You did not bring the sacrifice. Jesus goes to the cross and brings you to your atonement. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus himself says this in John. He says, for this reason the father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it back. No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own. It is the Son of God who, even when you were still a sinner, lost and without hope, died for you. And so what do you bring to your salvation? You bring absolutely nothing. 
Your great shepherd laid down his life on the cross, and after taking it back up again, he brings you to himself. He gives you your salvation. And so if we think that we are in any way contributing to our salvation by anything we've done, by anything we might bring to the table in our own minds, we are actually robbing God of the glory of his sacrifice. And so here's the supreme comfort. Do you struggle with doubts in your faith? Do you sometimes feel that you've lost the love of God and perhaps he hasn't really saved you? Have your siblings left the faith? Have your parents left the faith? Have your children left the faith? Do you look at your past life of sin and shame and feel that there's no possible way God could love you after all those things you did? Jesus is the good shepherd. As he says in John chapter 10, I know my own, and my own know me. There is no one that can snatch his sheep from his hand. There is nothing in all creation that can separate his sheep from his love. He is the good shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes into the dark and desolate wilderness of sin to find the one sinful and broken sheep to bring them back. Doesn't matter how many years you may be walking away from the Lord, God, if you are His, will bring you back. And so we might say it this way in Leviticus chapter 1 it's a shepherd who leads a sheep of his flock to sacrifice that sheep for his sin. But in the reality, it's the good shepherd who lays down his life and brings the sheep to atonement. So as Calvin so beautifully says, in Christ, brothers and sisters, in Christ, you stand and are upheld by God's hand alone. That naked and empty-handed, you flee to his mercy. You rest entirely in it. You hide deep within it. And seize upon it alone for righteousness and merit. For God's mercy is revealed in Christ to all who seek and wait upon it with true faith. In Christ, Calvin says, the Father's face shines full of grace and gentleness even upon you a poor and unworthy sinner. What can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make you whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your great mercy, for your great undeserved mercy toward us. 
Father, we thank you for your Son who came of his own will, who took on flesh and tabernacled among us, that he might take our sin upon himself and present us spotless and without blemish before your face. Oh, Father, we feel in ourselves our unworthiness. We feel in ourselves our nakedness. We feel in ourselves the lingering sinful nature with which we have to wrestle all our days. We think of the sin that so easily besets us that we do not love you with our whole mind and our whole heart and our whole soul. And yet we know that your substitute did. We lean on him. We have faith in him. We pray that you would more and more lead us to go deeper into his love. That we would meditate on him more and more. That we would live our lives more and more in him and through him and to him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.